This episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by Warby Parker, which is awkward because I have a little bit of a past with the titular man himself. Uh, he, well, I just learned this. Warby Parker is dating my mother. The four-eyed CEO himself took my mother to Thoga the Chow right under the nose of my father. Uh, and now I'm doing an ad for him. I'm not happy about this, but capitalism knows no bounds, and I must read the ad copy to make my nut for this episode. So here we go. Ori Parker was found with a rebellious spirit and a lofty objective, to cuck my dad and eat a limited Brazilian meat. They also offered designer eyewear at a revolutionary price while leading the way for socially conscious businesses. <sighs> Every idea starts with a problem. Ori Parker's was simple. Alan's mom was happily married, and glasses are too expensive. By circumventing traditional channels, designing glasses in-house, and ruining my parents' relationship, Ori Parker is able to provide higher quality, better-looking prescription eyewear at a fraction of the going price, and an attractive lover for middle-aged Indian dentists like my mother. Ori Parker allows you to pick out five frames from their collection. Ori Parker will ship their selection to you for free, so you can try them on in the comfort of your home. Or they can come to your house, seduce your mother, and with a chain restaurant gift card, end a 30-year marriage. To try on your glasses today, go to boardwalkaudio.com slash warby. That's boardwalkaudio.com slash warby. This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the Support Our Artist button and shop on Amazon like you normally would, and I get a little kickback. Uh, in case you've been living under a rock, it's absolutely March Madness time at On Comedy Writing. For every episode of March, I'm reading the same sketch pitch. Maybe I should have thought harder about what the sketch pitch was going to be instead of a simple blackout. Well, I've already recorded all the episodes, so it's way too late. Uh, before we get into the episode, uh, I just want to quickly say I have a <laughs> I, it's funny in, in LA I, I did shows like somewhat often and I never once plugged them on this podcast uh, and I've only just realized I should probably be plugging stuff that I'm doing. but uh, this is kind of almost an embarrassing plug. I have a, my UCB 301 class show. I finally took UCB 301. Uh, it's next Monday at like 6:30 I think Monday the 26th. Uh, you know, come, if, if you come, like, let me know ahead of time so I'll know, and I'll, uh, you know, we can get a drink or something in Times Square. <laughs> I'll take you to Bubba Gump's and we'll get, uh, margaritas there. Uh, our third guest of On Comedy Writing's March Madness is Beth Newell. She's the co-creator of Reductress, and folks, if you're not reading Reductress, you're messing up, because it's now, like, a satire institution, just as, like, Cl Onion and Clickhole. Uh, I have, I was reading it recently a lot because I interviewed Beth, and it actually, like, it often combines the newsy tone of uh, The Onion with the clickhole absurdity, uh, which I find to be super successful. Like, go scroll through, through some headlines, and you'll see what I mean. Um, and, you know, Reductress is great. It's awesome. And uh, Beth's uh, really smart. She's really smart on comedy, uh, and it was awesome to talk to her. So here is Beth Newell. Uh, Beth, thanks for coming to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, where are you from originally? I'm from Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. Oh, cool. What part of what city? Uh, it's a town called Linfield. It's like uh, okay. right, right in the suburbs. 
Yeah. What, what was it like growing up there? Uh, it was fine. It's like a, you know, it's like a nice town, but it's also like very secluded in the way that small towns are. Um, it was like, I don't know, just very quiet. Yeah. Were you uh, into comedy growing up? Yeah, I was really into comedy, but I didn't realize I was really into comedy, if that makes sense, because I feel like, I guess I just felt like everyone was into comedy, and then looking back, I'm like, oh no, I was like obsessive. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. what, like, uh, what, what do you mean then? So you're, you're, were you like watching a lot of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I was like, my um, aim handle was SNL viewer. <laughs> wow, uh, SNL viewer just one like that just that phrase, no numbers or anything? No numbers, just wow. SNL viewer. No one was trying to get on that at the time. Yeah, I was really into SNL and I was uh watching a lot of BBC America, which was like a new channel that we oh, started okay. to get and um so you know, I watched a lot of Monty Python and British sitcoms like coupling and stuff and I don't know. I didn't that's interesting. I didn't know BBC America showed those comedies because I remember, for me, I watched like a lot of stuff on like PBS. Like they had like oh, Blackadder, yeah. and yeah. like uh, Vicar of Dibley. Vicar of Dibley. I didn't really watch that one. I, I didn't watch that one either. <laughs> I don't think BBC America was like heavy on the Monty Python type stuff, but mm-hmm. they did have a, like some sitcoms and just like I don't know general British shows. I was also really into like The Daily Show and all the Comedy Central stuff. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Uh, when did you start, well, in, in high school, did you start, like, performing comedy at all? No, I was super shy, and all my friends, it seemed like, almost all of them were, like, musical theater, like, kids in chorus and theater, but I didn't really do that stuff. I was, like, on the outskirts of it, because I was kind of, like, an art nerd. I was really into drawing and painting and stuff, and um, I would help out with their plays. I was in one play in, like, middle school, but I mm. was just, like, kind of in the background, and I think I, t- <laughs> my uh, my lack of confidence, I really like internalized that casting and was like, well, this isn't for me. I'm bad at this. <laughs> um, and then I would help my friends like in the play competitions. I was like assistant to the director at one point and would help him like w- with set design. He didn't like really help let me help. It was sort of like glorified help, mm-hmm. but I like would help my friend change pants backstage between scenes, you know, stuff like that. Uh, when you, you said you did art, was there like a uh, comedic bend to any of it? Uh, yeah. So I don't, I know I was like doodling growing up and I wasn't like, especially into like comedic art, but I was definitely into at some point like old school, like the origins of political satire oh, comics. Cool. Like, and that was something I got really into in college because I went to school for illustration. And so I would look at um, those like Thomas Nast drawings of, you know, like Boss Tweed when you see like the original right. political cartoons where it's like, look at this big uh, fat governor, a uh, mayor or whatever. Uh, <laughs> and they would have like a speech bubble that was like, insert joke here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was really into that stuff. And I, I was always like kind of into like old timey, like funny uh Old timey comedy, I yeah. guess. Yeah. What was the? Um, there's like a famous one during the Revolutionary War, right? Isn't there like a, fam- like a very famous one? Um, I don't know. I am wrong. The ones of that period, I feel like they're all like it's like a bag of money or something that's like the deficit. <laughs> you know, like it's just very like direct. I there probably is. I can't remember what it was. This is super random, but I've been thinking about this a lot on the L 
on the the end of the L is like the Fourteenth Street and Sixth Avenue, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe Eighth Avenue, Sixth Avenue. Uh, there's like some weird, like kind of anti-capitalist art, like oh, all around. Oh, those sculptures. Yeah. yeah. Would you know what the? <laughs> I mean, That's I don't know. a very famous sculptor, and I don't remember what oh. his name is, but it he has sculptures a lot around New York. It's 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 so odd. I know. It's funny. It's I don't know. I'm not that into sculpture, but I also think like. I, there is definitely good sculpture out there, but I think sculpture is one of those weird art forms where it's like very heavy investment threshold. So it's oh, like, it yeah. feels to me like a little bit like it tends towards like the art of rich people. Mm-hmm. So, cause like if you're going to cast something in bronze, like you right. obviously have some extra cash lying around, you know? That's fine. I didn't think about that, but that's very true. <laughs> but it's just like, there's like a, a baby that's got like its head is a money bag and then a crocodile under the sewer. Yeah. Eating it. Yeah. It's definitely like a New York based artist. Cause it's a lot of like crocodile sewer stuff yeah. and he does a lot of money bags for heads and stuff. Like, yeah, a lot of stuff with money bags. Yeah, it's a wild thing to see in the subway, <laughs> which is just odd. Uh, so you were, so you were, you were interested in political cartoons, I guess, like, as an academic, maybe. Uh, yeah, I mean, I like, I loved the drawing style. I love, like, mm. pen and ink drawings, and I love, um, there's an artist, I believe, from the 70s named David Levine, or Levine, and he does, like, caricatures of politicians, so he would do, like, uh, it would be like a sort of joke about like this politician's shedding crocodile tears, but it would be like a picture, a drawing of a crocodile and then like huge tears coming out of its head. And then like the tears would have like a drawing of that politician's face in them. And he would okay. do like, it wasn't always political, but he would do like an ostrich with a man's head or something like it, but it's just beautiful like line work. And I think I kind of loved the, like the, like the direct plan reality. I think that's what I, what I love about illustration is it's like more of like a people's art. Like it's meant for print and it's meant to be like mass consumed. And um, with those illustrations, I really loved like the line quality of the drawing and the f- way that it was sort of like not being coy about what it was about and sort of like a direct right. commentary on things where, which is like, again, like kind of how comedy is. Like it's just, it's not being shy about like what it's trying to say. Whereas art is often like this like lofty, like, thing for rich again for rich people or like for like art people and i i like art that is meant to speak to everyone that yeah that's interesting especially because i think it feels like political cartoons are kind of the few things where the few things of art where it's just like this is what it's about and there's no like there's not like much hidden meaning behind that yeah and sometimes that can be really clunky and dumb but it's also like I don't know. There's something fun about it. <laughs> There's that uh, conservative political cartoonist. I forget his name, but he does like <laughs> he does like insane drawings. Like he does like Trump with like a six pack of abs, and then like he labels everything. Like he says like <laughs> this is Obama. This is the deficit. This yeah, is... those are all. I again, I think those are all sort of like watered down versions of like what Thomas Nass was originally doing. Mm-hmm. And I, Thomas Nass is credited with like being like a big part of the downfall of boss tweed as this like sort of like mob boss politician and uh he part of his success was that he drew him in a way where anyone could understand it and a lot of people didn't read at that point so the cartoons sort of spoke for themselves without people having to like read an article about what this person was doing wrong and how they were like skimming the system um and like 
you know, it's just this this very recognizable man where everyone in the city of New York sort of like now knew who this guy was and was like, we hate this glutton who's trying to like siphon off the system. And he made him so recognizable that I, I think at some point Boss Tweed like fled to Italy or Spain or something. And even there he was like recognized. Oh, wow. uh, uh, I think that, I don't know if they caught him or something, but I I don't know. I think that's re- like a really cool <laughs> effective way of like speaking truth to power and I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's similar to like uh with Tina Fey and Sarah Palin, I guess, in that same way. Yeah. <laughs> which is interesting. Um so you went to where did you go to college? I went to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And so you you went there uh for illustration? Mhm. And were you uh, doing like any like comedy stuff there? Um, yeah. Well, I did. My sophomore year, I started doing stuff at UCB here in the city. So I didn't really participate in like the Pratt comedy stuff. I think I was like being kind of a snob about it because cause as soon as I got to UCB, I was like, I want to do UCB. UCB mm-hmm. is the best. Um, they did have an improv group at Pratt that I kind of avoided, but. Yeah, I, I once I started doing UCB, it kind of became my whole life, and then I like was barely socializing at school, and I wasn't like someone who had a lot of friends at school to begin with, so it was like not uh, a huge loss. But I just became so enmeshed in UCB and like doing improv or seeing improv like six nights a week and stuff. So, uh, how did you first discover UCB? Um, I think my college gave us like free timeout magazines when when we first like moved into the dorm or something and i saw an image of tina fey and amy poehler like doing a show at ucb and i it like blew my mind because i put snl and those people on such a pedestal and i was sort of like the snl viewer (laughs) the snl viewer i was like i can't believe you can see these people in person um so i started going to ASCAT all the time and uh, originally I went with a few of my college friends and then they sort of like got tired of like waiting in the cold in line. And I just met friends through improv classes and then would sit outside with them for hours on end. Um, yeah. And that was it. Uh, did, did you gravitate more towards improv or, or sketch? Uh, I definitely was obsessed with improv, like a lot of people. And that was sort of like the apple of my eye for a long time. And it, it took me a while to realize that writing was a thing I could do. I think like it's like a combination of not growing up, like understanding that comedy writing was like a real job. And then everyone was so into improv at that point, the sketch program barely existed. Like you could take sketch classes, but there wasn't sketch teams. There was some sketch shows, but a lot of it was really like conceptual, like, like, um, you know, they would have, like, shows where people would watch, um, like, tra- R. Kelly's Trapped in the Closet and kind of, like, roast it or something. And it was, like, okay. a lot of the shows were not, like, fully formed sketch shows. You know what I mean? And I also, <laughs> I got so intimidated in my sketch classes. I feel like my teacher was, like, very intense. And I felt, I was just immediately, like, I suck at this. Um, and then it wasn't until I took like a break I basically I graduated college and my parents were no longer like funding my lifestyle and I was trying to pay rent and stuff and I didn't I knew because I had majored in illustration and done all this UCB stuff I knew I just didn't want like a day job day job like I didn't want to be like a graphic designer I didn't want to like sit in front of a computer all day and so I would get these like 
part-time shitty jobs. And again, this is something I think I saw on like an Ian Roberts show where he was like, if you want to do this and pursue creative stuff, you should always get like shitty jobs that you feel comfortable leaving at a minute's notice. (laughs) And so that was kind of my philosophy where I was like, I don't want to get emotionally invested in something. And even when I was doing these shitty part-time jobs, I still was getting emotionally invested in them. Like I was just so like, I have such a strong fear of authority, I think. And I would just like really internalize my horrible bosses. So, so anyway, I was doing that. I had to take a break from taking classes because of like paying for them. And I, I had auditioned for Herald teams like at least four times at this point and not made it. So I was like, maybe I just need to take a break and see. And then basically I just ended up getting very depressed in the way that I think a lot of people get when you're coming out of college and you're sort of like, what am I doing? And because I wasn't doing comedy, I wasn't seeing a lot of my friends anymore. And it was just like very, I don't know. It felt like all my friends had either at that point gotten put on Herald teams or they had given up. So I was sort of in this weird in-between phase. And then I got so depressed that I was like, something needs to change. Like I need to do something. And I guess at that point I had this light bulb moment of like, okay, I'm going to try to do this. I have to figure out a way to pay for it. And I have to do it in a real way where it's going to have an actual future, which improv doesn't really have. And so what I decided was my husband was um, working at the Magnet Theater at the time. And then at some point he... um, step down as artistic director and at that point I was like okay if I start doing stuff at the magnet now that he's no longer artistic director people will no longer think that I'm only getting this because of him so I offered my services of graphic design to the people running the theater and I was like can I just get a couple free classes in exchange for this and they were like cool I would you know design things for the website and stuff So I just started taking sketch and I was like, now I'm doing sketch seriously. And I just poured myself into it and, um, you know, slowly started teaching there and started helping them run workshops for women. And I eventually, um, helped them sort of run their fledgling sketch program. Um, and that's, and then after a while of that is when I came up with the idea for reductress. So when you're like in a, position or when you feel like you've had like some failures like how how do you how do you deal with that oh man um I don't know I mean you have to like keep on pushing I think for me what what has worked really well for me is try to find humor in the pain of that and like I don't I don't necessarily attribute like all my failures to being a woman but it did feel like at a certain point like I, you know, being a woman was a hindrance and, you know, being one or two women in the room and having dudes sort of like stare at you blank eyed when you would present an idea was like, okay, this is not like working well for me. And I, so that's sort of like, I, I guess also I knew like a huge degree of that was internalized sexism. Like my like total lack of confidence was at least partially coming from this like internalizing the way that I think the world looked at me, which is like, I am a woman and I also started comedy pretty young and I've always looked pretty young. So I just feel like I, there was to some extent like a real lack of respect I was getting. And again, I don't think I was like amazing at comedy, but I don't, I also don't think I was being encouraged in the same way that other people might've been. So I started running these workshops for women because I knew that so many of them were feeling the same way and not necessarily because someone told them they couldn't do it, but just, they were just sort of like, Oh, I can't do that. I can't get on stage. I can't write a sketch. And I knew, I knew 
they would be able to do it better than a lot of the dudes that were very comfortable trying. Yeah. Do, do you think things have gotten better in like the last, you know, however many years since then? Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just more women around and at a certain point, I think more women are going to break through. And then when more women are seeing more women break through, it's just that visibility is encouraging for them. But I, I think there's still a lot of struggles out there and there's still just like a lot of unconscious ways that people treat each other that they don't realize is because of their gender or their race, but it, it is, and it happens to them. And I think that's the frustrating thing is you can't like point to it and be like, that person definitely did this because of that. But it's like a series of microaggressions over the course of your life where you suddenly start to believe that this way you're being treated. Right. And that's like, that's just a life thing. That's not like only a comedy thing. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is like, I think a lot of times the discussion will be about like this theater is bad or this person's bad or like this person's trying to keep people down. And like, yeah, sometimes that happens. But I think it is more of like a cultural problem than just like one institution Mm -hmm. doing, you know, Um, you know, we're all products of the culture. So we're all, unless we're actively working against it, we're going to react in a way that is a product of the way we've been raised. Right. In what ways do you think, uh, could the comedy world like take steps to improve that specifically comedy? Um, well, I mean, I think at the theaters, I kind of, I know, here's the thing. I run a small company and I know money is tight and like money doesn't grow on trees. So these things are much easier said than done. But I do sometimes wish there was more uh, training around sexual harassment and racial issues. And there's just, like, I've had the privilege of being surrounded by women at Reductress who I think really care about feminism and really read up on these topics. And there's a language around it that I think a lot of people think is this, like, unnecessarily academic language. But I think when you have a language for something, it becomes much easier to discuss and it becomes much less a pointing of fingers. It's more just an, an understanding of the situation we're all in. So I would love for more white men in the community to take an interest in things like sexual harassment and tone policing and uh, diversity. And I think it, this is, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. This is something you have to care about and you have to read up on multiple times. And I'm still learning about a lot of these things. And you know, I'm still learning about a lot of queer issues. And so it's, I think it's, it's taking an interest, it's doing some reading and it's being open to criticism. And I know from reductors, like when people on the internet are saying mean things, it's really frustrating and like, it's gonna sting. Like that's what happens. But I think you have to step back and think like, if this person's saying this thing to me that stings, Imagine how much they're, they're hurting and have been hurt by this issue to be saying it this way. And, you know, sometimes people don't say things. They don't put it in the best words. And that's another um, issue of tone policing where I wish the people doing the criticizing would not be criticized for the way that they're saying it, the way that they're mm. criticizing, it, especially when it comes to certain diversity issues where I think the people in power do not step back and take a look at the context of like where this person's coming from, maybe what type of education this person might've had. And like, they don't have to have perfect spelling and grammar when they're calling out a diversity issue. Like Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe just because they don't say something perfectly does not make their point invalid. 
Um, That's such a weird internet thing that people always just harp on grammar. I hate it. I hate it so much. And it's funny, too, because I'm a writer, and I've, at this point, I've been paid to write things, and I'm, I still will mix up your and your, you know, like, I just, it drives me insane. It's like, it doesn't make me a dumb person. It just makes me a person who is typing something fast. Yeah. I Uh, I never even thought about, like, you must have crazy comments from reductress articles of like people angry for a myriad of reasons, like for a bunch of different reasons. Yeah. And it's really hard. I think that's sort of just like you have to get used to that and you have to develop a thick skin and you have to, if it's something you're working on, like if you're actively working on issues like diversity and diverse content and, you know, being sensitive to trans issues, I think you'll have a better barometer for that type of angry feedback of whether it's valid or not. So you can step back and be like, is this valid or is it, uh, is this person a little bit off base or just being reactionary? And I think, you know, even when someone is just being reactionary, it's like an opportunity to step back and evaluate and be like, how are we doing on this issue? Are we informed or like are we hurting someone because i think even if their tone is incensed and they're saying mean things it's like it doesn't mean that you didn't do something wrong right yeah uh so you mentioned you were the the managing director of sketch at Mm -hmm. the magnet uh what did that job like entail um i would help cast the teams and read people's submission packets and then um sort of like schedule things um schedule shows and just sort of like oversee things it was like a very early stage of the sketch program Mm -hmm. so i can't really speak to what they're doing these days but yeah when you uh read a sketch packet like what are you looking for um personally my big thing is sort of like getting to the point or getting to a joke right away and just clarity. So, I mean, you'd be amazed at how many people like not only are not setting up a clear joke, but just you within a few lines of a sketch, you like don't even know where you are or who's talking, you know? And I think similar to what I was saying about the uh, political cartoons, it's like, you don't, um, you don't want to do it in a super clunky way, but sometimes for the sake of time, you do have to have someone come out on stage and say something dumb like, I'm the president. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's dumb, but it's like, if it saves your audience like a minute of exposition, then it's like probably fine, you right. know? And I think there's an understanding from people that uh, that's kind of something you have to do in comedy. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, they'll gloss over it quickly and they'll be like, okay, I know where we are, what's happening. Um, that's the biggest thing is just clarity. And I think as a writer, I still struggle with that sometimes where what is in your head is not always on the page and you go back and read it and you're, you realize how bad it was. <laughs> right. I, I uh, wrote a sketch like a couple of weeks ago where it's like on a, it's like soldiers. And so I just like wrote interior, like a uh, battlefield. And then I like never really mentioned that they were soldiers again. Like it was kind of, it was kind of clear from like the way they were talking. Yeah. But I never said like, sorry, or, like any, like things like that. That was the other thing that would drive me a little bit crazy. Like looking at people's sketches in like at that stage was like, people would write something like interior battlefield. Uh-huh. And it's like, you know, this sketch has to be performed on the <laughs> yeah, stage, yeah. right? Like give us the cues that we are going to use mm-hmm. as performers. Like, is this person wearing a uniform? What's the prop? Like, right. and it's like, 
again, that's another thing that I still sometimes struggle with. You just have to make sure you're really painting a really clear picture for whatever medium the scene is going to translate to. Mm-hmm. So do you not like the uh, the interior uh, thing? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's just like, uh, I think it's, it depends on, you know, the context of who you're working with yeah. and how you're working. And if you know what that is and you're the one putting the sketch up and collecting the props and costumes, it's fine. But um, it is a good um, muscle to start practicing, like, what it would be like if you were handing your sketch off to a production team and they were launching it and someone else was directing it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a good thing to start thinking about is, like, yeah. how how do I actually tell people how to get this made? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you also taught sketch there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was kind of your like teaching uh, philosophy? Um, I similar to what I said of just clarity mm-hmm. and you know f- getting to the game or the joke. Um, that that's a big thing. I mean, also because of just like my personal reasons and what led me to reductress. I'm pretty big on like sort of just the ethical concerns of like, is this joke punching up or punching down? And, uh, you know, I always tell students like, I know you're, you're not like actively trying to be racist, but this sketch is going to appear racist to people viewing it on stage who don't know you and don't know who wrote this. Mm -hmm. And like, um, there's just, I think this again, like comes down to clarity and not having extraneous details in your comedy that don't, relate back to the joke they're not serving to set up the joke and they're not providing context for the joke if you have too much of that inevitably you accidentally send a message that you don't mean to send Mm -hmm. and so especially within the first like page of a sketch or a scene it's like you're sending the audience all these signals of like this is what this is about and it if you waste their time you're just leading them down the wrong path right uh, I forget what TV show it was, but someone recently uh, talked about how because they're talking about like like lack of or there's about clarity and lack of extraneous details, and so they were saying that too often in comedy they think like the default is like white, so then mm-hmm. he was writing characters that were white, and you realize like that's like stupid because it's like the default shouldn't be a race. Yeah. I mean, that stuff's hard. I, you do have to factor in your audience. And I don't I don't know. It's a tricky balance because I think mm-hmm. you do want to represent non-white things. But you also need to consider who your cast is, what the yeah. audience is going to be like, and like whether they're going to get the reference points and whether your cast can represent the thing that you want to represent. Because, you know, like you can't write a sketch about a black guy and then have a white guy come out and play him, obviously. Right, right. But, um... Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing. And I think also, like, what's hard, I think, is, like, when white people first try to start writing that with the best of intentions, it's really easy to, like, start writing to a stereotype instead of writing to actual right. black people. And, and that's why it's so important to have a diverse group of people in the room so that you can get honest feedback. And, um, you know, if you, if you just have one token black person in the room, they're not necessarily going to feel comfortable speaking up on that. So right. you need, you really do need as much diversity as possible yeah it was oh it was something recent too another recent thing i don't know why i'm just have recent comedy (laughs) news in my head but like bill Hader's got that new show coming out uh barry Mm -hmm. and he said that uh they had the writer's room was like 
kind of as half male, half female, I think. Mm-hmm. And so all the male writers were like, uh, oh, it's romantic if this guy gives, uh, or like a one night stand, uh, a laptop the next day. <laughs> and then the women were like, no, that's weird. That's so weird. Uh, and it's, it's so funny to think like, yeah, that's why that matters. But it's also like, what are those guys thinking? A laptop? That's insane. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you'd be surprised. I, there's just, again, this is just so much, like, ingrained cultural stuff where, like, we've all been trained to think that, like, the plot line of, like, a romantic comedy is, like, the most romantic thing ever, even when it involves, like, a ton of, like, sexual coercion. And, you know, like, yeah. it's just, we all have to sort of step back and self-analyze. <laughs> uh, so when you were managing director, you had to form the teams and then sometimes break up the teams. Mm-hmm. What would be, like, what was, like, your thought process through that thing? Um, it was, I, it was really hard. I mean, it was like, again, it was like early stage. So I think that was like part of the process is like, you did sometimes have to break things up and restart. And, um, part of Armando's philosophy at the time, which I didn't, I didn't always agree with was he wanted to sort of just like break everybody up all the time so that there was less hurt feelings and then kind of like reassemble and have it be less of a personal decision. And I, at the time, I think I was much more of like a tough love mentality, which I'm not necessarily as much into these days, but I was sort of like rejection is part of the process. And I think a lot of that was coming from my experience with like so much rejection, but, um, yeah, I, yeah, it's tough. I don't know. I, you know, we would, sometimes things just aren't working and people don't like working together. And that was the hardest part because when people come to you with complaints, you, it's so hard to figure out what's actually happening. Um, because sometimes the person that comes to complain to you about the team is actually the most annoying person on the team. And, you know, they're the one that everyone's complaining about. And it's like, I don't know. It's so complicated yeah. uh, to try to get to the bottom of that. And then no one, I don't, it's, it's very hard to run things like that because there's so much distrust of the whole system. I think we all have so much ingrained um, fear and hatred of authority, myself included. And I think, especially if that authority is a woman, there is just like this really deep distrust. So people don't come to you with the information, you know, they're not, it's like you're, you're only getting bits and pieces of the story and you're only getting it from like the most annoying people sometimes. <laughs> so it's, I don't know. It's so hard. I, I, I don't know how you solve that st- still. I, it's, it's easier at reductors cause we're like all women and I think people are excited to work there, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It, comedy, it's so personal and people get upset. Yeah. Would you ever break up teams for just not uh, being good? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I we it, it was at a very fledgling stage when I was there. So I think people got a lot of chances. There, It wasn't like we had people pouring into the system. It was like, you know, sometimes it, I don't I don't know the numbers, but it's like, we have 60 people applying and we need to fill like slots for 40 people or something. You know, like it wasn't like the, the odds weren't like crazy against them. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't, <laughs> uh, so reductress, uh, how did that begin? Um, so I was kind of like 
I think I was in my apartment alone, just kind of like stoned or something late at night. And I just, it, this was like a culmination of a lot of things. Like I said, I was running these workshops for women, getting more women in, into the program. And they, the sketches they were writing were so funny. And they were writing to the female experience and writing things about tampons. And I was like, this is so funny. And I simultaneously was trying to find places to write for because there's, I don't, I'm not a great performer and I don't love running I didn't at the time I was getting a little frustrated with running sketch shows because I was like I would do like the bulk of like the finding props and sort of like trying to make things happen and like I always felt like I was like carrying a lot of the load and I also didn't love like being at the theater all the time so I was like I need to find ways to do more writing from home and like be an introvert (laughs) and I uh was like submitting to like McSweeney's and different places and I realized there's just like so few places on the internet where you could even submit comedy and even if you wanted to put sketches on online that's a lot of work too and so I was also doing that I was like filming some sketches with my friends and stuff but again I felt like I was like doing a lot of the work and wasn't sometimes I felt like I was not getting enough feedback if that makes sense like I don't know I just wanted more like uh more collaboration and so I uh Anyway, all that was going on, and I think I just sort of, like, randomly came up with this idea for a fake women's magazine, and I was like, well, there's a cheap way to do this. We could just do it as, like, a little blog or something, and so it was one of those things where I was, like, trying to, you know, take more risk in my life and reach out and do things, and so I was like, I'm just going to send an email out about this before I lose my confidence, so, like, late at night, I emailed Sarah Papalardo, who... I had worked on some sketch shows with and she was one of the people that I felt like always showed up, always rewrote her sketches, took the notes and would like, you know, just a resourceful person who would bring a camera to a shoot. And like, it it was like, unfortunately, the bar was very low for what people (laughs) uh, were bringing to the table. It felt like at the time. So I was like, she's great. Um, she'll be, be able to get the job done. And so I just asked her like, do you want to try to do this? I, I had like, very very minimal web design experience and I was like I think there's a way to piece a website together and like get different blog feeds into something and I was like we'll figure it out and I I knew Sarah like I I think I thought at the time that she was like a graphic designer but she was actually a project manager at (laughs) uh at like a um, agency that did like a creative agency so she actually like had way more experience with this type of thing than I realized um, and she was you know she was a manager so she was more on the delegating end of like sort of making the project come, come together but she had access to a lot of people who did know how to do these things so um, she ended up actually just teaching herself uh, coding and Whoa. she did the bulk of the design for the early site um, and yeah, it w- was like, I don't know. We were kind of, I think we were kind of like, well, this will just be like our little project and like, maybe it'll get some attention or whatever. And we, again, like, because I had been doing the workshops, I was like, you know, I want to like provide a space for other women to do this thing that I'm trying to do. That's so hard to do. And, um, so we talked to a bunch of different women in the sketch program at the magnet and around and was sort of like, Here's what the website is. It's a parody of women's magazines, women's media, and um, you can pitch us ideas. We'll let you know if you want to write them up. And we would, like, rewrite them pretty heavily to try to keep the tone consistent. And I think I did – 
I actually wrote like the bulk of the articles we launched with, I want to say. Like, I think we launched with like 60 articles and I maybe wrote like 30 or more. I'm not sure. But, um, but we were also like heavily rewriting everything else just to make it like feel like a real thing. Um, and so, yeah, that took us, we started in December, January, and we launched in April. And yeah, then we started getting like a little bit of press early on and we were like, oh, this is actually cool. Uh, how do you even go about like, so once you have like the people, I mean, how do you even go about like starting like an actual like business out of this? Um, well, so it's kind of funny. We, one of our originally original headlines was L'Oreal launches line of anti-bullying makeup for teens. Okay. And we, within weeks of launching the site, we got a cease and desist from L'Oreal, which was like kind of scary because they're a huge corporation. And also we had no money. And like, you know, if they came around to sue or whatever, like it was our names on the site, we were personally going to get sued. So a big part of the initial reason to become an actual company was just trying to avoid lawsuits (laughs) so we researched how to form a company and i went on legal zoom and like filled out all the paperwork and it's actually pretty annoying to start a company like a real llc because you have to um you have to like fill out all this paperwork and then you have to publish the existence of your company in multiple publications in your like local district or whatever it's like it's a very weird like legal technicality and there's like these magazines or newspapers that exist solely for <laughs> the uh, purpose of like publishing new companies and different things like that like legal notices <laughs> and they're like it has to be like publications that have like a certain like readership like they have right. to they have to print like this many copies of it so it's like these weird it's this weird dumb legal technicality where it's like the these these sort of fake newspapers that exist just to published these sort of documents and so i had to like you know go to like brooklyn city hall and do all these little things uh and you have to do it for like four weeks in a row and it's uh really annoying (laughs) but um yeah i learned a lot i guess (laughs) (laughs) and um how like formed was the site from day one like how much has it changed from like uh the style wise you mean in terms of the content yeah the, the content yeah um it's evolved i think a a lot of this content early on was us just trying to actually set the tone of what it was so the jokes would be more broad and like uh this might not be super early on but like we had one early on that was rachel winitsky wrote called um eight sex positions to blow his mind and destroy his penis and that was one of our big ones and we had a lot of stuff that was like very obvious like direct like parodies of like cosmopolitan type headlines and i think you know, like we still had to sort of like signal the people like this is what this is and this is what the tone of a woman's magazine is. Um, and now we're less beholden to that. And I think we can go in different directions. And also the type of media we're parodying has changed a lot. So like when we started, I feel like feminism was not nearly as mainstream as it was. And, you know, this was before clickbait was huge. And now the internet's just a different place and every publication is trying to be woke. So there's like sort of a different way of parodying that tone. And there's also more you can get away with in terms of content that still, still feels like it would be published by a website like this. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that's interesting. 
what's a normal day like at Reductress? Uh, so we come in, it's a lot of just like staring at our computers in silence and then like talking about what we want to eat for lunch. But, um, we, you know, we have, um, an intern who sort of like goes through the intern email and they'll take all the pieces and pitches that our writers send us and like put them into Dropbox folders and into Word documents so we can look at them all. So on Tuesday, we have a pitch meeting where Sarah and I and sometimes one of the other editors will read through all the pitches from everyone. Everyone sends in like 10 or more pitches. And then we uh, we usually select like maybe 10% of those. So it's like one or two headlines per person. And we will um, we'll decide which headlines we like and... Sometimes we'll tweak them a lot just to make sure the joke is clear and to make sure it like fits the tone of the website and, you know, try, we might try to make it more topical or more relevant based on like the specificity of like what celebrity we're talking about. Um, yeah. And then, uh, we assign those out. Some of those we write in house just because of like time and efficiency. And some of those will have those writers write up themselves. So they'll send those in. Everything gets edited by two or more people. So um, a lot of times, um, whether something's being written in or out of house, I or one of the other editors will go through it and do like a joke pass and like punch it up and, um, you know, edit out extraneous details. And usually Sarah comes in and does like a a final pass, which is a little bit more of like a copy edit and making sure um, we haven't made any huge grammatical errors or anything. Uh, And... What makes, like, a good headline to you? Um, again, just, like, clarity yeah. and getting to the point. I mean, I that's always been a big thing for me, but especially with something like Reductress or The Onion, I think, like, you just have to have the joke there. And, I mean, people don't even really click on the articles, even if they like the joke. So if you are expecting anyone to click on it, you really need to let them know what they're in for. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. I've I've been noticing that like somebody like shares an article, like somebody would share like a thing, and then I said I like messaged him. Oh, that was really funny. He's like, oh, I didn't even actually read it. I right. just read the headline. They, yeah, they that's, don't read it. <laughs> that's so. I mean, like that's so weird. So like, what do you? I don't know. What do you think about that as someone who who writes these, uh, who you know cares about this and, and invests a lot of time and energy into this? It's really tough, but I also get it because I'm also a busy, tired person. So. We one thing we're trying to do now with our new podcast, The Reductress Minute, is have people read those articles and um, you know get some extra mileage out of them, and hopefully people will be driving their cars and hear more of the jokes because a lot of them are so well written, and it's kind of a bummer that no one's hearing them. And we do have some jokes on our site that are more of like a one liner, and it's just the headline, which is cool too. Like sometimes that's all you need, but. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, we work really hard at it, so it's, it's a bummer, and I think it's unfortunately, like, just gonna result in a lot of us, a lot of websites sort of changing their business model and focusing less on the content, um, so, yeah, yeah, we're trying to find ways to, like, spin that material off into other Mm -hmm. things, Uh, and digital comedy is obviously in a kind of strange place now, so, uh, I don't know. How do you run a digital comedy site in this this era? Um, you know, we're just trying to like diversify revenue streams, which we we're already trying to do because like Reductress has never been the most like lucrative thing in the world. But 
Um, we have merch on our site now. Um, you know, we're trying to come up with more ideas for that. We do live events. Uh, we do live podcasts. Um, yeah, we're just, we, we, you know, we wrote a book. We're trying to figure out other ways to diversify that because the internet is just not a good way to make money. Yeah. I mean, there, there was that article by former guest, Matt Kleinman, uh, and yeah, I don't know. It seems like it's tough right now. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's so many factors. Obviously, Facebook right. is a huge one. I don't know if they're going to like revisit that algorithm. Probably not. I think... We, I don't know. I, we're going to be resourceful and try to figure something out. I think we're also like in a bit of a comedy boom, so I don't know like if this is sort of going to change at all i I don't know (laughs) yeah it's it's interesting it does feel like we're about to hit the 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 bust yeah yeah well i mean it's not the worst thing i think for the marketplace to reset itself because there's been a lot of stuff out there and a lot of sites are no longer able to do a lot of video stuff which is definitely like a huge bummer for the people that work there but i also do feel like some of it was getting watered down so i don't know interesting i don't what do you mean by watered down? I mean, there's just so many YouTube videos, oh, right, yeah, yeah. and there's so many like meme makers, and I, I don't know. It's just unfortunately that's just the way of the world. Is like you you pay, you play to the lowest common denominator, and you're gonna get more eyeballs and clicks, and it sucks. But like, I we can't cater to that. Like then we would just want to kill ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> it, I've had a couple of like former funnier die writers on and they talk about like there was like this golden age where they just could do whatever they wanted and mm-hmm. they'd get like $50,000 or something to make a video. <laughs> and so it's so weird that now it's like totally gone, yeah. totally different era. And that's like, I don't know. I think that's the weird thing about being creative is like you slave over these things that mean so much to you. And like, I'm sure your podcast feels like a labor of love, you know, like, but you're like, Every once in a while, you get some weird corporate gig or something that, like, pays your rent for a few months, you know? Like, and then it's, like, and I think, like, actors and comedians, they all have this. And it's, like, you kind of just have to, like, take the good with the bad and keep moving. But, like, you can't, you can't, like, cater to where the money is if you want to, I don't know, feel good about yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Has Reductress done, like, uh, branded stuff? Uh, just a little bit here and there. It's it's really hard to do that as a satire site, right? Because it's just really hard to stay in the voice of the site and please the brands. And you know, we're still like a lot smaller than a lot of a lot of other media outlets. And the media outlets that are bigger than us to begin with are part of like a conglomerate of other websites. So they can get these ad buys and things mm-hmm. that are you know gonna get so many more eyeballs than us. So. Mm-hmm. You know, and we have partnerships and we're trying to work within that. But it's just, yeah, sponsored stuff has not always been great for us. And But I think it works better with podcasts because I think there's less of an expectation that you're going to, like, uh, do this cra- like crazy funny bit about the product. It's just sort of like you do your thing on the podcast and then you mention the product right. and it's fine. <laughs> Uh, Introductress does tackles a lot of like difficult subjects. Famously, there was like a whole uh, page about uh, rape culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you write about like a loaded subject like that? So, I mean, this isn't like 
probably news to a lot of comedy people, but, you know, we just try to make sure that the target of the joke is always, you know, the person who's perpetrating the bad thing and not the victim. (laughs) You're never never laughing at the victim, and we're always just very mindful of, like, who gets caught in the crosshairs of the joke. So you don't want to... Uh, accidentally offend anyone that you don't mean to offend, especially any oppressed groups. Um, And so with the rape culture stuff, we, you know, our thing was just like trying to shed light on what felt like very common experiences to us and our female friends and um, sort of having fun with that and having fun with the like ways that men talk to us about these things, because it was just so frustrating. Like I, Uh, This is like, I mean, this is obviously very triggering to a lot of us as women because it's just so personal to us. But we, you know, when we had these sexual assault allegations coming out in the New York comedy community, it was, it took us a while to process it because the event happened, which is upsetting in itself and us finding out about it and knowing that it touched people close to us. And then the conversation around it was then doubly so frustrating because so many men we're treating it so callously. And again, there's like so much tone policing, so much speculation about women, what these women should have done or could have done. Or this is like coming from people who have no context for the situation. And I, I don't know. It's like there's no right move for you as a woman in those positions, whether it's sexual assault or sexual harassment. There's just no way that someone isn't going to find ground to judge you for how you reacted or behaved in that situation. And so hearing that from men in such a misinformed way who had never experienced anything close to that was so frustrating for us. And I think, you know, it's just, it, it was more fun and satisfying for us to go after a lot of those men to go after than to go after actual rapists. Cause I think everyone theoretically agrees that rapists are bad or they'll at least pretend to believe that, but, um, but then they'll victim blame all over the place, you know? So that, that's what we're often so trying to do at Redactress is just, um, sort of poke fun at the well-intentioned people who are making things way worse for everyone else and Mm -hmm. not, you know, not necessarily go after like the Trumps of the world, but then go after the, um, millions of people that, put him where he is yeah yeah Spe- speaking of trump a lot of comedy outlets have like since trump's election he totally changed and kind of like trump is i guess the the big <laughs> the big clicker that's like the big it gets all the clicks i guess i don't know uh how has like the election and that changed like reductress at all if it has um you know, we're sort of kind of doing the same thing we always have done. Obviously, everyone kind of like ramps up their election coverage during an election because that makes sense. But it was the election was so exhausting as a woman. And I think it was especially exhausting being a woman who, <clears throat> you know, works with women and runs what is trying to be, you know, feminist site. And um, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. Um, it was I, it's so hard to speak to that because I, I feel like there was multiple like sexual assault, like shitty men scandals going on in our community during the election that were directly affecting women close to me. Um, while I was watching Hillary Clinton get all this shit from Donald Trump and from other people. And while Donald Trump was actually an abuser. And so it was like 
such a heavy weight on me. And I also was postpartum and experiencing a health issue. And so it's hard for me to like uncouple all of this and just say like, here's what I learned from the election. Um, it's more just like, what, how do you, how do you retool after having the life crushed out of you for several months? Um, I, how I reacted to that is just, um, trying to come to terms with the fact that I cannot personally save the world <laughs> and you know, like I can do my best. And I think a lot of us coming out of the election, were like, we have to become activists. We have to do this. And for me, I, I had a slow realization that like what I'm doing at Reductress is sort of like the best use of my skills in sort of an activist type way. And one quote I've heard from other activists is sort of that like activism should be joyful you know, you should be laughing at power, people in power, and you sh you should find a way to make the world better that is fun for you. Because otherwise, even when you find a way to do it in a fun way, it, you still kind of feel like it's sucking the life out of you sometimes. So, um, so I guess we've never been, we've never considered ourselves like primarily a political like comedy site. Um, and so we still don't really do that. We're more doing cultural comedy, even if it points to political issues, because I think, you know, feminism is political. So, you know, I, I think that's more fun for us and our writers. And I think it speaks to things in a way that is more sometimes more accessible for a lot of people and doesn't necessarily get as many clicks as making jokes about Trump. But I think... There, just so many of those jokes about Trump are already being made. And if we're going to do it, we want to do it in a new way that sort of speaks to people's personal experiences and mm -hmm. speaks to a broader issue. And we want to implicate as many people as possible and have people hopefully self-analyze. I mean, I, I'm not necessarily that optimistic about like changing minds with my comedy, but I also, I guess I'm trying to like, maybe inform a younger generation. Um, so if we can do comedy that like, speaks to young people and gives them a read on the world that we think is valuable, that's cool. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think we just try to keep it fun. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to think about because I guess satire is considered to be like this tool to like bring change, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, and like, Pretty much everyone's doubled down on, on Trump coverage, and it's not really making a difference. But Yeah. Well, it's also... Here's the thing. is like I think sometimes comedians don't give themselves enough credit in that regard, and I think that's a way of brushing off responsibility for your work, especially if your work is offending trans people or people of color. It's like, actually, you're, the things you're putting out there do have power, especially if you have a huge platform. Um, but it's also like... Yeah, you're not necessarily going to change minds and you are sometimes going to be preaching to the choir. But I do think that there should and I think there is becoming more of a focus on doing sort of like ethical comedy. So mm. I think what was frustrating for me watching a lot of the comedy going on during the election is when people would resort to cheap jokes about Trump, about his appearance or you know, his mannerisms or whatever. And I, it's not like I don't think there's room for some of the jokes about his hair and stuff. It's like, fine. Like we all need to blow off steam during that horrible, horrible election. But it's, if it's not really saying anything, I don't, it's, it's even less going to change people's minds. Right. You know what I mean? And I think 
I, I just, it's, I think it's not necessarily that people could have done better. It's just like the, a lot of that lazy comedy I, I was seeing was a symptom of a lot of liberal white men. I know not being willing to self-analyze this, the sexist undertones of the discuss, discussion because, you know, it's just like, I don't know. I just, I do think like liberals were not united in that election. And I like, I don't think um, liberals ever really take into account people of color enough in the discussion. And I think it's, I, there was a lot of people buying into these sexist ideas about Hillary Clinton. And I don't think she's perfect by any means. And I certainly think she has plenty of flaws, but I, a lot of us can agree that she was the best candidate in that election of the two. And I, I just, I don't know. It just drives me crazy to hear so many men play like devil's advocate to these conservative ideas of her that are part of this conservative media machine that's been happening for decades to break her down based on this, this uh, deep seated reaction of men being threatened by a woman in power. So yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, not to go off on that tangent, I know we've hashed it out a lot uh, during and after the election, but I just <laughs> would love for more men to sort of like analyze their reactions to women in any position mm. and ask themselves like, like, I guess for me so often it's like, it's not that the point you're making is wrong. Like, it's not that the thing that you're criticizing Hillary Clinton for is not wrong. She's a flawed person like everyone else. It's just like, if you consider yourselves a liberal and you're talking about the election and nine out of 10 points you're making online are criticizing the candidate of your party, why, how do you think that is going to affect the outcome of the election? Right. And I, it's just like a proportional thing, you know, because and I see it the same with the tone policing and the criticizing of Black Lives Matter and the kneeling during the, like the anthem. It's like. I don't know, maybe you do have one tiny good point in there, but the larger point is that police brutality is happening. So is that really the point you want to make today to however many followers or friends you have online? You know, and that's the thing that drives me crazy all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so <clears throat> uh, Reductress wrote a book. How to Win at Feminism? Yeah. What was that process like? And wh wh why did you decide to write a book? Um, <laughs> I guess, you know, uh, just for fun. I don't know. <laughs> we, we thought about that very early on. We were not very far into launching the site. We were approached by um, someone who was a literary agent or a manager, uh, editor. I, I can't remember now because she switched careers <laughs> since then, but she was like, she just like approached us and was like, you guys should write a book someday. And we were like, cool, let's do it. And she was like, well, no, not today. You're not ready. And we were like, Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but that, uh, sort of like lit a flame under us. And we, for a while, we're just sort of like thinking of like, what would our book be if we had a book? And we had always kind of like made fun of what, people are now calling white feminism. I don't really think white feminism was like being used as widely as it is now as a term, but we had always thought it was funny the way the media would try, like women's media would try to empower women in this way that was sort of like 
hollow and actually just trying to sell them things. And um, we are always sort of having fun with that sort of like feminism or like you go girl attitude that like didn't really stand for much at the end of the day. And like the sort of feminist campaigns of like Dove lotion and stuff like that. So I think we realized that like that was sort of a common thread. Sorry. That was sort of a common thread of like what we had been doing over the years. And so we uh, eventually figured out the concept Mm -hmm. of the book. It's so weird how brands have just totally (laughs) co-opted everything. Just like the Super Bowl commercials are just all like these crazy like. I know. I It's weird. I think it's good and bad. I always wish they would do it better. But I also think like when something goes mainstream, like the way when I was growing up, obviously, uh, the world did not love gay people. <laughs> and then, you know, Ellen came out and Will and Grace happened. And Will and Grace is not the best representation of gay <laughs> people. It's heavily weighted in stereotypes. But at the same time, it allowed middle Americans to see gay people as human beings. So I don't, I don't hate that stuff as much as I don't know. Some people do. It's definitely, I understand why it's frustrating. Like I see the same issues and I agree. Like it, the, a lot of those things could have been done better slash not used to sell beer or whatever. But, um, I am also kind of glad when those things are becoming a part of mass culture because I think that's how we're able to have this moment right now with the school walkouts and the the you know um uh during the NRA sort of protests and I think at the end of the day it's a step in the right direction Mm -hmm. and so you're working on this book how are you balancing the workload with the site um that was rough. I We would write on the weekends and work on the site during the week. It was um, me, Sarah, and Anna Dresden uh, writing the book together. Um, it's hard. Writing books are hard. I actually just finished um, writing another book with a friend of mine. Um, oh, great. But it's, it's just... It's exhausting, but it's, like, also good. I don't know. I like to write on the one hand, and it's also... It's, like, the... The fear of not getting it done is what's hard. It's not like the actual writing process that's hard. I I mean, it is, I guess it is for some people and it's hard. What's hard, I think, is finding the seed of an idea and executing it once you know where you're going is not nearly as hard. I mean, sometimes certain details you'll really get stuck on, but if you know what you're trying to do and you can keep coming back to that, that point, um, I think it is much easier. And I think that's like, what's been a really good thing about Reductress is like, you know, doing comedy about things that I really care about and sort of, it, it just comes a lot more naturally. And, um, you, I think we've all sort of learned to just sort of like follow our passion and speak to the issues that are bugging us or exciting us. When you were working on the book, did you like outline it completely like chapter by chapter or was it kind of more discovery in the middle? Yeah. I mean, that's the big thing with a book proposal. You usually do like a full chapter outline and then your editor kind of knows that that's more of like a guideline than a Bible. So sometimes you'll change chapters or change the title or you'll drop certain chapters and add others. Um, But yeah, we had like a pretty solid overview Mm -hmm. of what the book was going to be. 
What uh, surprised you about like writing a book? Um, just how long it takes. Yeah. It's you. It takes a long time to write a book, and we we actually only had like three months to write our book, which is pretty short because they wanted to get it out in time for the election, which meant that we had to. Uh, it, it takes the publisher like a year to get the book ready to publish from the time that you turn in the manuscript, which means that we had to write it a year before the election and then have it ready for the election, which uh, ended up not being as fun as we thought it would because we thought we would have a female president. And like, it's like feminism was trending, but in all the saddest ways. Um, So yeah, it's like, I guess I, I didn't realize how long publishing takes and Mm. you're, and then, like, you're you're usually not responsible just for the writing, but you're responsible for a lot of the design elements and photography. And so you have to figure that out. We have to do, like, photo shoots. And uh, it's all good stuff. It's just a lot to consider. And you have to give input on the layouts and make sure things are being designed in a way that doesn't kill the joke. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what would you like to do in the future with Reductress? Um... You know, I don't know. It's I always feel weird speculating because then I feel like people are going to ask me about things that I threw yeah. out there. Um, it's Everything takes much longer than you expect, so I don't like to speculate too much. Um, I don't know. We just want to, like, break out into more mediums. And, um, you know, we've got uh, two podcasts now, and maybe more. We'll see what happens. But, yeah, we're just going to keep mm-hmm. building it out there. Uh, what advice would you give for, like, a young... Uh, female comedian trying to be, you know, make it. <laughs> oh man, uh, it's hard. It's a little different these days, I think, than when I started out because I think there's more female friendly spaces. But uh, what I would say to people in general is just like find a way to do your comedy that doesn't kill you and keep doing it. And if that means like putting up your own bar shows or whatever you have to do to get your reps in or like get your writing practice, just keep doing it. Um, yeah, you just mm-hmm. that's the thing. I get, you got to get your 10,000 hours in or whatever. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're going to wrap up uh, with you giving your thoughts on a sketch idea I have. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, okay, so it, it's, a, it's a blackout sketch. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a courtroom, interior courtroom. Uh, <laughs> and instead of finding the defendant guilty or not guilty, they find him to be cool as hell. So they're like, we find the defendant cool as hell. <laughs> and so I think it would be like someone like... Like, I guess the judge saying what he did mm-hmm. and the things that he's, he's, like, doing are, like, stereotypically cool, I guess. Okay. Like, he's, like, driving, like, a Trans Am and uh, <laughs> smoking a cigarette with a leather jacket. Yeah. I like it. I actually... It's surprising how much I like that concept because I don't usually <laughs> like blackout sketches. I mm-hmm. usually find them, like, unsatisfying. I think the key is just making sure the cool specifics are relevant and timely to now. Oh, so, like... Unless you're, like, setting it in a different time period. Well, I kind of think it's funny to think, like, a leather jacket is cool. Yeah. So I was trying to think, like, very, like, I guess 50s, like, cool. (laughs) And they think, this guy's cool. Yeah. Okay. I think, yeah, you just need um, jurors who can really commit to that character. Yeah. Of... (laughs) of thinking that's cool yeah it's it's kind of a bad idea for blackout because it has so many people like you need like jurors you need a judge (laughs) there's like 15 people you need for this one minute sketch (laughs) um i think 
think there's a way to do it without them. I right, think yeah, just yeah. like um, spotlight those two two people on stage as if there's more people behind them so that they can run out and do it real quick. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah I thought this is a concept. Any black eye sketch, I think you want to get in and out as quickly yeah. as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. All right. Uh, anything you want to plug? Uh, the Redactress Minute podcast, which you can find on iTunes. Uh, Redactress, you can find me on Twitter at Beth New. You can find my adorable children on Instagram at Beth Newell. <laughs> All right, cool. Thanks for coming on the show. All right, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow on Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week. Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit boardwalkaudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.